1: The genetic engineering of our food may well be the most profound alteration in our diet since the advent of agriculture 10,000 years ago. In the past, our ancestors selected from naturally occurring variations to gradually transform wild plants into food crops more suitable for the human populations. Seeds were then seen as the common heritage of humanity and generally available for saving, storage, and dissemination. But now, a handful of transnational companies have used relatively crude biotechnology techniques to engineer foreign genetic material into many of our staple crops. Ignoring millennia of evolution and selective breeding, they've added, among other novel genetic material, viral, pesticidal, antibiotic-resistant genes into every cell of these plants. In this way, new and potentially harmful substances never before seen in plants end up in our fields and in the foods we eat. These same corporations have also placed patents on these plants
0: and the techniques used to transform them, giving them monopoly control of the seeds of the earth. Andrew Kimbrell is the founder and executive director of the Washington, D.C.-based Center for Food Safety and the International Center for Technology Assessment. He edited Fatal Harvest, The Tragedy of Industrial Agriculture, and The Green Lifestyle Handbook. His new book is Your Right to Know, Genetic Engineering and the Secret Changes in Your Food. Welcome to the program, Andrew. Glad to be here. I'd like to start back at the beginning with basically the first technology ever developed by man. It's been around so long we no longer think of it as a technology. That's agriculture.
1: Yes, about 10,000 years ago, uh, depending on who you who you believe, uh, we had the advent of agriculture, which fundamentally changed, actually. Humanity stance towards nature and society. Most of what we think of as history, most of our religions... Uh, really came from agriculture. It was agriculture that that allowed people to live in societies, to to uh, exist in stable places, and many would say, also might have begun a long history of exploitation of the earth that has ended where we are today. But certainly, agriculture was the basis of the social systems that we now know, and again, and also the religions and the and uh, the history that, that, that we
0: know. The very nature of agriculture, as it was first created was a communal nature in that seeds were shared, crops were shared. And and that, I think, really did help, as you say, create what we know of as human society. Well, that's right. You know,
1: sometimes we forget the culture in agriculture. As a matter of fact, I would say sort of modern uh, agriculture in the United States is really agribusiness. We have taken the culture out of it. Uh, In agribusiness, you know, in my lifetime, we have lost uh, 10 million farmers, 5 million farms. We've lost 95% of the diversity in in our vegetables and in our fruit. We've lost topsoil at a rate of 20 times greater than we can ever replace it. Uh, You know, so we've, agribusiness has taken the community, it's taken the farmers, it's taken the ritual out out of making food and also out of eating food. And so it's really taken the culture out of agriculture. So I think we, should, we, we need to have a new struggle, if you will, to restore the culture in agriculture, to take agribusiness to get rid of the business and substitute culture. So once again, we do have an agriculture, which is based in community, which is based in respect for the earth, and actually from learning from the earth as well.
0: The latest twist of the agribusiness uh, jihad, I guess you might call it, is genetically engineered food. This is something we don't hear about, but there's a reason we don't hear about it: is because nobody has to say a single word about it.
1: Yes, you know the the, you know I'm, you know I'm I'm old enough to remember uh, you know slogans like "Progress is our middle name" and "Better living through chemistry," and I remember the Jetsons, which is this imaginary TV space age family, and they ate nothing but pills, which they cut with a knife and fork for some reason. I'm not quite sure why they did that, and they had they drank the sort of orange orange substance which we assumed was Tang because when I was a kid, Tang was the drink of, of the astronauts. Uh, and, you know, industrial agriculture has been going along this path for quite a while, long before genetic engineering, this idea of more chemical inputs, more mechanical inputs, huge monocultured farms, you know, this, this, this idea of trying to turn agriculture into a huge corporate business based on the factory model. But they, you know, and, and they certainly, through traditional breeding, changed the plants of the earth. There's no question about that. But now, with genetic engineering, this is a whole new level of corporate manipulation of, of, of life. Here, they're actually changing the permanent genetic code of plants for fun
0: and profit. Uh, let's talk about the, some of the earliest uh, versions of, of genetic engineering. We first really heard about it with RGBH.
1: Yes, recombinant bovine growth hormone was the, you know, I don't know who does the public relations for Monsanto, but the stupidest idea I've ever heard of is saying, now listen, we're going to try and introduce a new technology to America, this genetic engineering, which has got some scary science fiction stuff going on anyway, right? But you know what we're going to do? The very first product is going to be a genetically engineered hormone that we're going to inject in cows so they can produce more milk, and some of that hormone will get into the milk. And, you know, isn't this a great idea? I mean, I mean milk, I mean, you know, we know there's some problems with milk, but the, the general public impression of milk is that it's pure, that we have this pure milk, you know, and the milk is something you don't tamper with. Also, milk is something that our kids drink. It's, it's, you know, it's something we you know we give our children. And so here, the very first thing Monsanto did was create something that not only is bad for the animals, because it, it destroys these cows, but also pollutes milk, uh, recombinant bovine growth hormone, And and, you know... I used to say it's, it's a product with no socially redeeming value because we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars to reduce the supply of milk in order so dairy farmers can make a living. And here comes a corporation that's injecting essentially uh, hormones. I mean, this is like cows on steroids to have them produce more and more milk that we don't need. So we have a, a market of a in milk. The price goes down, destroys the small dairy farmers. It turns out it burns out the cows. It creates laminitis, which kills them. It creates more mastitis, which means more antibiotics to the cows, more pus in our milk. You know, So we consumers don't get anything out of it. The taxpayers are, are wasting their money and trying to control the supply of milk when Monsanto's increasing it. So it's bad for the farmers, bad for the consumers, bad for anybody who pays taxes. And yet the only person that profits is, is Monsanto. But interestingly enough, this product uh, was rejected vir- around the world. And uh, Monsanto, Monsanto recently had a contamination problem. They got rid of about 80% of it. And so it is a failed product. Like so many of the products of this supposed genetic revolution, love and growth hormone has been a failure, both a, a commercial uh, failure and also a failure around the world as far as it's getting any kind of acceptance in the farms around the world.
0: Right now, I think one of the most interesting aspects of genetically engineered foods is the fact that there's no regulation What? so ever. I I find this just mind-boggling and extremely frightening. Could you explain the history of how we came to this point where uh, our foods were being changed at a a genetic level and there was no need to notify us maybe that we might care? Yeah.
1: Well, first of all, let's talk about, you know, what genetic engineering really does to food. You know, people say, okay, I've heard that they've taken the antifreeze genes from flounders. These are the genes in flounders that make them able to live in lower temperatures, very cold temperatures. They've taken that gene and put it in tomatoes so that we can have tomatoes that can be frozen for a very long time and still be relatively edible. I mean, that was, That's actually been done. And But how in the heck do you get the flounder genes into the tomatoes? We know there's no natural mating going on. That's not a picture we don't want to think about. Uh, so how do you do it? And here's how you do it. What they do is they take uh, something that can invade the cell of the tomato seed, and that turns out to be a bacteria. And they take the flounder gene construct that has this protein that allows them to be antifreeze, and they, they attach that to the bacteria. The bacteria invades the cell and deposits that genetic construct somewhere in the chromosomes. It's actually very, very unpredictable where it's going to go. But that's not enough. They said, you know what, we need to promote the activity of that new gene because it's in a foreign environment. So in almost every case, they've, they, they've attached a virus, usually a cauliflower mosaic virus, that promotes the activity of the gene. And then on top of that, they put in genes that are resistant to the antibiotics kanamycin and ampicillin because they use that as a marker system to see whether that whole cassette, as they call it, has gone into that seed. So hold on a second. In every cell of genetically engineered food, There is this novel bacteria that invades the cell, the novel genetic construct, like the antifreeze gene of a flounder in a tomato, these viral promoter genes that go in and promote it, and these antibiotic marker systems that that are resistant to well-known antibiotics. That's in every cell of a genetically engineered food. And when it came time for our government to say, boy, how are we gonna regulate, first of all, test all these things for safety, all the different genetic constructs, all the different kind of viruses they can use, all the different kinds of bacteria vectors they can use to get it in that cell. What it does to the cell, what it does to the plant. They punted and they said, "You know what? We're going to declare this entire technology without looking at it, without any independent set testing, safe."
0: How did who did that, and how did they manage? That doesn't even make any sense whatsoever right? on any reasonable level to even the most callow lay person. How? Did the FDA make that decision? Who made it? Well, the FDA
1: scientists started looking at this new technology, and they said, you know, this brings up some serious questions. We see how by taking a gene from one species and putting it into another, like that fish gene, you know, into the tomato, that you can take a non-toxic food like tomatoes and make them toxic. We see that these new proteins can be allergenic. They can hide known allergies. They can reduce the nutrition in food. Uh, There were certain studies that said it could depress immune systems right? Uh, there was a number of problems that they were seeing and said, we need to test for these problems. But what happened, and this was in, uh, uh, you know, in the early 90s during the Bush's father's administration, he handed this over to Dan Quayle. Dan Quayle, the vice president who had a competitiveness council. So Dan Quayle, as some you know, listeners may remember, is the guy who could not spell potato. But we, we put this into his bailiwick, And he said, oh, well, let's see how quickly we can get this through without regulation.
0: Well, presumably, if he couldn't spell potato, does that mean he couldn't spell tomato either?
1: Exactly. (laughs) And he certainly couldn't spell regulation. Uh, We know that. And so what they did was, um, in a classic revolving door, one of the most egregious I've ever seen, they took Monsanto's attorney at a big uh, Washington law firm called King & Spalding, their lead attorney, Michael Taylor, and they revolved him into the FDA. This is in the early 90s. And he approved bovine growth hormone and all these genetically engineered foods without testing, without any mandatory testing by the corporations or the government, and without any labeling. And that had been the industry's position. So he came in and got that done under his name. That then became the policy of the FDA. And when we called for an investigation, we petitioned the agency and, and, and we said, listen you know, the Inspector General, you need to take a look at this. This is a complete conflict of interest. He came right from Monsanto, right into this FDA. And and not only he, but a number of other uh, Monsanto uh, employees were brought into the FDA to approve bovine growth hormone and all these genetically engineered foods. And he then, after that investigation started, he was revolved into the USDA. Then he quickly revolved back out into the private sector where he ran Monsanto's office in Washington, D.C., So essentially, what you had was a corporate coup d'etat of of the FDA taken over by a single corporation, Monsanto, in order to approve its bovine growth hormone and to approve these products and to ensure that there was a policy in place of no mandatory testing and no labeling. And despite the fact that over the intervening 14 years, virtually all the countries of Europe, you have also Japan and Australia and Korea and countries in Africa, all demanding and, and getting labeling and testing, we still don't have it in this country. Uh, That policy uh, survived to this day of no mandatory testing and no labeling. So in other words, we're guinea pigs, all of us, for this food. It's untested, it's unlabeled, and and we're eating it because
0: of this uh, corporate coup d'etat of of the FDA. That's quite astounding. But, of course, it's not a problem because all of this food is just completely safe, right? Tell me now, what are the health risks? The health risks actually
1: are very much tied to the very techniques of genetic engineering themselves. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we have the fact that when you take one gene, recently, this is an Australian study that was very interesting, they took a, 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 very, a, a gene that was known in, to be part of the bean and they put it into a pea. And by taking it from a bean to a pea, it became toxic. The pea became toxic. Uh, and... We've also seen in a number of huge recalls, like the Starlinking incident, when we had a certain variety of genetically engineered corn, that it creates new proteins that could be new allergens, that create new allergens in human beings. So, here, you, the, the process itself uh, there was a, 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 a harmless amino acid called L tryptophan. They use genetic engineering to double up on one of the genes because so they want a little bit more productivity out of it. One company did this in Japan. That genetically engineered tryptophan and only the genetically engineered variety caused dozens of deaths and hundreds of serious injuries in this country. So the, it can take a non-toxic food, it can make it toxic. It can create allergies. It can also hide known allergies. They took a single gene from a Brazil nut and they put it into a soy plant. And those who ate the soy, who were allergic to Brazil nuts, not knowing it was in there, became had the same allergic reaction as if they'd eaten the nut because that protein was in there. Unfortunately, that was not not then commercialized. So it also lowers nutrition. What happens is that when you invade the cell with this bacteria and with the new gene, the cell rejects it like your body would reject an organ, and this causes conflict within the cell. And so we have seen absolute peer-reviewed studies that show that this lowers nutrition in the foods, genetic engineering. And finally, there's some controversial research in Europe, but it's but it's been... I think backed up by a number of studies that shows that it may be the viral promoter or other elements in that genetic cassette, but they seem to have an impact, at least on lab animals, that lowers their immune response. So that's it, toxicity, allergenicity, lowered nutrition, and lowered immune response.
0: Well, one of the real dangers, it would seem to me, if you combine a lowered immune response and a heightened resistance to antibacterial Drugs, what you get is a population that is at serious risk of succumbing to a single disease, a a pandemic that could easily take advantage of all of these weaknesses that we've genetically engineered into ourselves and our foods.
1: Well, at least I think, you know, first of all, I mean, the British Medical Association, a number of other organizations said it is absolutely ridiculous to have in your food you know, genetic material that is resistant to antibiotics, particularly common ones like, you know, canamycin and ampicillin. That's just wrong. We already have an enormous problem, as you know and your, and your listeners know, with resistance to these antibiotics growing so that so they're not effective anymore. And here we have it in every cell of these foods. It, it, it's just, and, and it's not even necessary, frankly, for the technology. That's not even necessary for the technology. But what makes this so, you know, uh, to me so galling And what's so underreported is the fact that, you know, about 85% now of all the genetically engineered crops in this country and around the world are genetically engineered for one purpose and one purpose alone. And that's to be tolerant to the use of herbicides. Normally, if you spray herbicides on your weeds and your crops, they both die. So you have to be careful with your use of herbicides. You can't just Spray willy nilly because you won't just kill the weeds, you'll kill your crop. But that was bad for Monsanto because, and, and, and DuPont and Dow, and the other corporations, they wanted to sell more of their chemicals. So they genetically engineered plants so that you can massively spray herbicide on these plants and they won't die. That's 85% of all the genetically engineered crops out there are pesticide promoting plants, as I call them. They are designed solely so they can withstand aerial spraying and other. Kinds of mass spraying of herbicides. As a result, over 150 million more tons of these poisons have been put on our land because of the use of genetically engineered crops. Without this one technology, we wouldn't even be here talking about GMOs. It is about chemical companies selling more of their chemicals. All of the nonsense that you've heard, and I'm sure your listeners have heard, all this science fiction stuff, more yield. Golden rice that's going to make people, you know, solve malnutrition and give vit- vitamin A to everybody that needs it. Um, Drought-resistant plants, plants that taste better, plants that reduce fat, plants that take, uh, you know, the harmful chemicals out of our food. Complete science fiction. None of that exists. None of it's in the pipeline. None of it is even. I mean, none of it's even, it should even be scientifically feasible. That is all simply public relations nonsense. What's really out there? Eighty-five percent is plants that can resist these herbicides. And the other 14.9%, there's a little bit of papaya, is when they've taken a pesticide, a, a bacillus thuringiensis, and actually put it into the plant. That's it. Two tools, 20 years, trillions of dollars, and that's it. That's this supposed biotech revolution.
0: As we genetically engineer plants that are resistant to the herbicides, we're also effectively biologically, genetically engineering weeds that are resistant to the herbicide.
1: You know, I've heard it said that, oh, we're just continuing evolution, Monsanto says. This is just, you know, our genetic engineering, we're just speeding up evolution. You know, I mean, first of all, you know, natural selection is not the same as Monsanto selection. There's no natural selection that would make plants, you know, resistant to, uh, uh, you know, herbicide. But let me tell you how evolution is working. When you have this massive spring, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of millions more tons of herbicide being put on these weeds and plants, the weeds, of course, develop through natural selection a resistance to those herbicides. So we're now seeing a new breed of super weeds. And these are weeds that you can't kill. They have seen so much of these herbicides because of genetic engineering crops that you, they can't find herbicides now that are virulent enough to kill them. And Monsanto's even ratcheting up the virulence of the kind of herbicide. It used to be Roundup, now it's 10 or 15 other kinds of herbicides that they are all saying we've got to use these on these superweeds. But that's not the only thing that's creating superweeds. It turns out that the genes that are responsible for this herbicide tolerance are jumping from the plants, whether that be a canola or corn or soy, into their weedy relatives. Could you explain how
0: that happens?
1: Yeah, it's basically, they're, they're particularly an open pollinated plant. They're actually pollinated in the same way. So the pollen from one plant actually can pollinate the weedy relatives, those that are close enough relatives to be pollinated by that. So you basically are spreading this gene into the weeds so that's also creating superweeds. Superweeds are creating both ways, both by so much of the chemical that they're resistant to it and by actually the jumping of this gene by pollinating the weedy relatives that, in a pollen that includes the herbicide-tolerant gene. So we're creating these, a really intractable problem. So what's going to happen? I mean, we, we can see it right now, right? What's going to happen in the next 10 years is this technology goes bust because all the weeds are resistant to these, to these herbicides. We have this really, I mean, overwhelming problem of weeds that will not be killed. I don't know what kind of poisons we're going to have to use to kill some of these weeds, right? Monsanto's out of the business, but meanwhile, they would have sold probably a hundred, not maybe, maybe a billion more tons
0: of their chemical. Now, this has a real local connection, too, because we are currently spraying for the light brown apple moth, the L-BAM, and... This is a direct result of uh, Monsanto with the glyphosate. Is it glyphosate? Yeah,
1: well, the, 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 there's a very interesting parallel, actually, with the BAM controversy that's going on right here. And I, um, I know a judge has done an, an injunction because he wants to take a look at the inerts. And I think that's a very wise judicial decision. And I'll tell you why. What we, what we found out was for years and years, people, you know, Monsanto's saying, OK, we admit Kimbrell's right. We admit that we we've sold hundreds more millions of tons of the stuff, but Roundup is so. I mean, we know among all the herbicides, it's one of the least virulent. So at least we're using a, a less virulent herbicide than other people might use. Like
0: a less deadly gun.
1: Exactly, a <laughs> less deadly gun. And 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 you know, and they said, look at look at all the tests on glyphosate. And to be honest, a lot of us said, well, that is true. Glyphosate is less virulent, still a you know virulent herbicide. You don't want to use it, but. We have to admit Monsanto has a point as far as it not being as virulent as other herbicides. We still don't want to see 150 million more pounds of it. But we were wrong. An independent test, and a couple of universities now did this. where they they, they did, and it's, it's really remarkable. They took a, a group of um, immature frogs, tadpoles, and they poured glyphosate into this. And then they did some actual tests in ponds uh, on the campus. And nothing happened. Tadpoles were fine. Then they poured a Roundup into a similar pond and there was an 80% die-off in the tadpoles. Wow. Then they did it with mature frogs. Again, glyphosate, no impact whatsoever on the mature frogs. Put the Roundup, 100% die-off. 100% die-off in five different varieties of frogs. What they found is it was in one of the inerts. It wasn't in the main ingredient. Wow. It was a an, uh, surfactant. And a surfactant is put into a herbicide so the herbicide will stick That's called uh, to the surface. That's what I call the surfactant of the plant that it's being put on, right? One of those surfactants turned out to be absolutely catastrophically deadly to frogs. And of course, if it was deadly to frogs, we, we're now beginning to do the independent test on what else is killing out there. This is a very, very important cautionary tale, I think, for, for the the bam I mean, the pheromones themselves may not be harmful. But there may be a very good reason why you know, the, the company is being very secretive about the inerts. And a very good reason why the judge said, let me take a look at these inerts. Because that's where a lot of the damage may come from. Don't let the word inert fool you. That doesn't mean it's harmless. It can be, one of, it could, it can be the very thing, as we found out with Roundup, that is the most destructive. So here for years, Monsanto was getting away with the fact, oh, Roundup equals glyphosate, and glyphosate's safe. Uh-uh. It turned out to be that surfactant is one, one of the deadliest things we've seen so far. I mean, that kill rate of 100% in a live setting of frogs is just astounding.
0: Beyond the just the immediate health risks of making us sick, genetically engineered foods and crops pose another real threat to the environment by primarily changing the environment. And uh, one of the things I thought was really fascinating was the quote from Ignacio Chapela. Uh, where he described what he called the DNA ecosystem.
1: Yeah, one of the things that we have now understood is that the old concept of genes, and you'll still see this in your newspapers and in your headline, a gene for this, a gene for that, uh, a gene for shyness, uh, a, a gene for scientific brilliance, a gene for musical talent, a gene for depression, and a gene for this and that. That has turned out to be wrong dead wrong uh when we finally did the human genome project this three billion project to find out the hundred thousand more genes we're all supposed to have because we're so complicated with our brains and all these things that we you know it turns out we have about we have less than 20,000 genes in other words we have as many genes as a worm we have about as many genes as a fly Oh, well, i've been called a worm yeah well it's, <laughs> it, 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 do, it is humbling uh, we have many fewer genes than rice than mice than corn uh, the, the Pinot Noir grape, one of my personal favorites, has almost twice as many genes as we have. This has caused an uproar in the in the you know the modern biological community. How could this be? We're so much more complicated. We have all these proteins that create all these different traits, many more traits than a little worm. How could we have so few genes? And what they've discovered is it ain't in the genes. You know, these genes, which are only 2% of our DNA, and there's 98% what they used to call junk DNA, only this little 2% they call genes because it coded for the proteins. Then there's this RNA, which I used to think was the messenger. All these proteins, we have 250,000 of them. We now have understood heredity is extremely complicated. What we used to think RNA was the messenger, now it's controlling a lot of our heredity. This junk DNA, that's ecosystem of DNA that Ignacio was talking about, it has a tremendous impact on heredity, as, does the pro, as do the proteins. And they're all working together in a relationship we don't understand. So genetic engineering, the entire field, whether it be in agriculture and even in medicine, is based on bad science. Big money, but bad science. They thought in in a sort of a patriarchal way that the gene was the CEO of heredity. And if they could play with the CEO, they could control the whole process. But now that it's it's this incredible spider web of complexity, tinkering with a little gene... You don't, it'd be like tinkering with a couple of wires in, in, in the back of your TV set, having no idea what they do. You may or may not get a clearer picture occasionally, but you have no idea about how the, how the whole thing works. And that is why we don't have drought resistant plants, and that's why we don't have plants with better vitamins in them. That's why we don't have plants that do all these miraculous things they advertised, because it's way, way, way too complicated. The ecosystem inside the cell. The ecosystem of heredity has turned out to be an extraordinary mystery. The one thing that the the new gene science has done, it has put us back a hundred years. But it's good that it's put us back a hundred years because it's restored the awe, the wonder, and the mystery that we used to have when we'd see the heredity of all living things. We now realize, by knowing so much more, how little we know and how much mystery still remains. But the genetic engineers and this tremendous capital investment behind them are tottering on a science that is already known to be false. It's sort of like the Wizard of Oz. They keep you know, pronouncing through the loudspeaker in the picture. But when you pull away the curtain,
0: the science just isn't there. Uh, could you talk about the Trojan gene effect? I thought that was a really interesting uh, and, of course, extremely frightening uh, revelation. Despite the scientific uncertainty
1: in this field and, of course, in all the new science, there are a few things that they have been able to manipulate because they're so simple. One is herbicide tolerance and the other is growth. They've been able to play with growth genes enough to be able to take growth genes from one species to another and sometimes, not always, sometimes they get a, a, a decent result. And this is what happened with salmon and a certain number of fish species. Uh, one company, AquaBounty, for example, took a number of growth genes, but they were originally were using human growth genes, and they switched it to d- different kind of fish growth genes, and and genetically engineered them into salmon, so the salmon would grow very, very quickly, often twice as large in half the time. And good for the, you know, good for the corporation. They say, oh God, we'll take less time, bigger fish, more money, right? And um, they tried to get this approved through the FDA. Actually, it's pending; it has been pending for several years in front of the FDA for approval to get these fish. Uh, sold and also out in out in agriculture. A couple of researchers in Purdue University, however, said let's take a look at this growth genes, and what they found was really scary. They they found that the growth genes the, the made did make these fish bigger, and it made the fish more attractive in mating. Right, the bigger well, fish course. sure are more attractive. This, by the way, explains why I got so few dates in high school. But we don't have time for this, and so to go into that, the big fish get the dates. <laughs> But because of the ignorance that we have about how DNA works and how heredity works, the physiological problems in the offspring caused one third greater death in the offspring. So here you had Darwin on his head, if you will. You had these larger genetically engineered fish with an advantage in mating, but one third more of their offspring were dying. And they did the arithmetic. If you released 60 Intentionally or unintentionally, and this happens in agriculture all the time, escapes. 60, only 60 of the genetically engineered fish into a native population of 60,000. You would have complete extinction of that native salmon population within 20 years. Complete extinction. And remember, this is a biological pollution. Once those 60 fish escape into the bay or escape in the river, you can't call them back. You can go, Oops. We made a mistake here. Come back. Come back, little fish. No, once they're released, that terrible arithmetic of extinction starts and you cannot stop it. And they called it the Trojan gene effect because you put a gene into, like the Trojan horse, obviously, in the Iliad, right? That you know that fooled the Trojans and, and led to their destruction. You put a gene in that you think's doing something good, making it grow bigger. But what we don't understand is that actually you've just Given a death sentence to that species by genetic ing- engineered engineering it that way.
0: The other problem is this: that the these genes, well, there's a loss of diversity. Obviously, this is a problem. Could you talk a little bit about the loss of diversity?
1: Oh, we already have. I mean, you know, in, in agriculture, we also we have this terrible loss of diversity because of hybridization of crops. Mm-hmm. We already have a huge monoculturing of 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 the crops. Of the Earth, we've lost about 95 percent of our vegetable diversity in the United States because of you know our huge factory-type farms. Uh, But genetic engineering further reduces that diversity. It limits, um, literally, you know, 80 or 90, uh, 95 percent of crop to a single genetically engineered variety. Genetically engineered, for instance, for herbicide tolerance. So it takes our what is already a monoculture crisis, a crisis in loss of diversity. And accelerates it many, many, many times. So you will now only have one uh, species out there, whether it be corn or canola or cotton or wheat. And here's what makes it even, to me, more frightening. And, And this is totally unreported, and I don't know why. Since 2004, Monsanto has seen the writing on the wall. Europe has said no to genetically engineered crops. Africa has said no. Asia is saying no. More and more people saying no to genetically engineered crops. And and even the courts now in this country, through the Center for Food Safety, our work, and others, the courts have stopped some of these crops because they their contamination potential. So Monsanto, seeing this in 2004 when they realized they were going to be defeated in trying to introduce genetically engineered wheat, which they were, when they knew they were going to be defeated in bringing out these biopharmaceutical crops, these crops that have pharmaceuticals in them, which they were defeated, we were able to beat them on these things, they started massively buying up seed companies around the world. Monsanto is now the number one owner of seeds. It is the number one seed company, not genetically modified, just seed company around the world. They are gobbling up the germplasm, the seeds of the earth. It will be under their control, under their patented control. And then they will be able to decide which seeds go out, which seeds do not. They can genetically engineer some, use hybridization on others, put their terminator technology in some. This is a technology which will cause these seeds to become sterile after one growing season, so the farmers have to keep coming back to Monsanto. If we had one company that was, that was buying up all the oil of the world, if we had one company that was buying up all the water in the world, it'd be front page news. Monsanto is slowly moving from the GMO field, which they know is a failure, to the seed and the patenting of seed field, where they will actually own the vast majority of all the seeds of the earth. And they will be able to decide exactly what seeds go out and what seeds don't, having to do with their bottom line and not having to do with diversity.
0: Going back to where we started talking at the beginning, this is really the end of culture, the end of agriculture, of taking the culture out of agriculture because co- agriculture began with the free sharing of seeds that you could give to somebody and they could grow their own crops. And that's what's really, you know, wherever I travel,
1: I am so encouraged, whether it be in India, whether it be in Hawaii, I was just, you know, in, 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 in Europe, we've seen, we've seen this going on in Africa, more and more people are saying, you know what, we are saving our native seeds, our native germplasm. We are actually sharing, beginning seed co-ops, seed saving. It's going on in this country. It's going around the world. It is a revolution against the Monsantos of the world saying, we're not going to let you own those seeds. We're going to fight your patents. And this has been done successfully. In, in, um, in Hawaii, marvelous activists there, when they found out that, the, that their university in Hawaii had patented the tarot seed, Wow. Well, actually, they genetically engineered it and patented. Mm-hmm. They came out in their in their Molokai. Came, these young men came from Molokai in their old Molokai war costumes. And they chained the doors of Hawaii University closed and said, we aren't leaving until you promise not to genetically engineer, taro and you give up your patents. Did they do so? Yeah. Wow. They were so frightened <laughs> by this. And so, you you know, you're seeing indigenous peoples around the world saying, you will not own our germplasm. You will not own our seeds. India said... Nobody can patent our basmati seed, a company patented their basmati seed. They beat that, and they said, no, and that's it, that, that patent has been rescinded. So we are seeing successful battles around the world. People are saving their seeds,
0: they're fighting these patents, and they're winning. What we've been talking about is the third group of risks, the economic risks of genetically engineered food. And one thing that struck me, I didn't realize, is that now farmers are having to sign technology use agreements with Monsanto. This is with regards to the seeds, correct?
1: Yeah, the there's that's bizarre. Yeah, if you if you're a, you know if you're a Monsanto, for example, or, or one of the other companies that's involved, there's there's three ways you can control the seed, right? I mean, one way is you patent the seed, and you say I own that, I, I have a 20, 21 year monopoly on that seed. And by the way, if even if that seed contaminates your field accidentally, and I find my patented material in your field, I get to sue you. And that we at the Center for Food Safety, we've done a study, Monsanto versus U.S. Farmers, where we showed that they've sued well, by almost 150 farmers, a number of other seed, you know, seed dealers and, and co-ops for having their patented seed on their land. And in many cases, it was because it was contaminated. So even though you're contaminated, Monsanto says, ah, we, we got you. You're patented seed, And anybody who's in one of these areas where they're planting a lot of these genetically engineered corn and, and soy, you know you're going to get contaminated. So it's really a confidence game Monsanto's got going. They're going and saying, hey, we know you're contaminated. We know we're going to find it. So pay us so and so much money. And they have gotten millions and millions of dollars from these lawsuits, Monsanto. So you can patent the seed. You can have these technology use agreements, right, Mm -hmm. which essentially says you agree when you sign this thing, basically, that you're not going to resell it. You're not going to save it, right? And then the third thing you can do is terminator technology, right? And this is this technology by which you genetically engineered a seed, and there's a number of different ways to do it, about 15 different patents I've seen on this. But the, uh, the result is the same. The seed basically commits suicide after one growing season. Uh, so that, you know... That seems like a, a real... Uh, Path to mass starvation. It really is. Eighty percent of the world's farmers depend on seed saving uh, for their livelihoods. Should we have a technology uh, in, in in terminator technology, a suicide technology, that escapes, like the gene for herbicide tolerance has escaped, and starts jumping to various crops, particularly open-pollinated cl- crops and others? Yeah, you you basically would see the um, the end of these crops. I mean, you know, farmers would it would be devastate. It would be absolute devastation. And the company that created the, the, the number one Terminator tech, technology so far, uh, Delta Land and Pine, has just been taken over by Monsanto. They well, just bought it. It's a, it's a big <laughs> cotton seed company. They just took over that. So, so those are the three ways that you have of, ta- of taking control of the seeds, patenting technology use agreements and uh, Terminator technology. What's also happening is that farmers, and this just happened with huge contamination by unapproved genetically engineered rice varieties in the South, Farmers who are contaminated can no longer sell—organic farmers can no longer sell the organic market in this country. Sure, and that's but more, a huge market. That's a huge market. But more importantly uh, for many farmers, they cannot sell to the conventional markets in Europe and Japan and in other countries around the world who do not accept GMOs, who have said, no, it has to be labeled, uh, and unless it's labeled, we don't accept it. We don't accept contaminated GMOs. So we have seen a number of farmers—we uh, uh, know there's already been about a $500 million loss just in rice— from farmers who can't sell that rice overseas. We've had hundreds of millions of dollars each year in, in farmers who can't sell their corn overseas because it's contaminated with GMOs. So the, the rejection of this technology around the world p- puts the, the poor American farmer in a terrible situation because they may be contaminated through no fault of their own. And, and, and it will not, and their contract to Japan or their contract to Europe, will not be honored because it's contaminated. And now think about this for a minute. What's, who do you go to? You've just been, you're, you're you're a rice farmer, they've discovered this unapproved genetically engineered rice, but even if it was an approved one, and you, you had a contract with Europe, and they say, oop contaminated, nope, your contract's gone. You don't know who contaminated it. How do you find causation? It could have been a truck that was going by, could be a neighbor 12 miles away. We know this stuff travels miles and miles and miles. So you are stuck. So one of the things we've suggested is, and we we, we got a bill introduced in California, which is not passed yet. It passed a committee in the House. It was not passed, unfortunately. Uh, did pass both houses in Vermont, but was not signed by the governor. And that bill says the company that puts those seeds into commerce or into experimental fields, knowing about the biological contamination that can take place, they are liable for any damages that come from doing that. Since they get the profit, they should be liable. So if you're a farmer, you know who to go to. You go to the company that put those seeds in commerce, knowing, as they did, that that would contaminate you and that the, the result would be possibly you're losing your organic market or your conventional market overseas. And so it seems to me it's incumbent on every state to say, listen, we are going to pass a law that says when our farmers get hurt, when hundreds of millions of dollars out of their pocket, it shouldn't come out of their pocket. They're, they didn't want this technology. They They were contaminated. They, it's destroyed their livelihoods that the company, whether it be Monsanto or DuPont or Dow, whoever it is, that, that, that put that particular uh, plant into the marketplace, they should face that liability.
0: And this brings us to back right to where we are in Santa Cruz. In the United States, we really don't have any kind of uh, regulation at this point. The, the FDA has dropped the ball. And so what we're looking at is to... Since we have no top-down protection, we have to build from the bottom up. And here in Santa Cruz, the Public Health Commission recommended a moratorium on growing all crops. And this passed and, and when, was made a part of the, um, the city charter in June of 2006. And do you think that this is the, the way that we're going to have to go about preventing our nation from being overrun by gigantic roundup-proof weeds?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great start. I mean, I was able to briefly take part in the wonderful work up in Mendocino County. We know that the Marin County uh, Trinity and, and we know, yeah, now that both the county, and I believe the city and Santa Cruz have adopted a moratorium, uh, which I think is great. Uh, yeah, right. Now, and in our book, you know, you, the book, you know, you're right to know, we have a whole section in the back on how to organize at your supermarket level, how to organize at your community level and your county level, because that's where it's going to have to be right now. We, we know that Monsanto has so taken over the federal agencies, uh, so taken over the legislatures, that it is really going to be up to the counties to do this. And one of the advantages, I mean, speaking as an attorney, often a state or a, a federal regulation can preempt local regulations. When there is an umbrella of regulations, you often can't go beyond them. Sometimes you can, but often you can't. But one of the ironic things about Monsanto being as successful as they've been at stopping any meaningful regulation at the federal and most state levels is there's no preemption. Counties can do what they want without fear of preemption because Monsanto has been ironically very successful in in keeping it. So it really is an open field, so to speak, uh, for counties and anyone to to do what you moratoriums or bans. Those will not be preempted. Monsanto kept saying they were going to sue. There's nothing to sue. There is no umbrella of federal regulations. They were able to stop that. So now counties can do it. Now, what we did see in, this, in, in the state of California, and we just saw in the recent Farm Bill in Washington, was an attempt by the state in California to say only the state can make decisions about seeds, not any you know, sub, uh, you know, whether it be a county or, or, or a municipality. We, have de- we defeated that, uh, Center for Food Safety, and a number of other wonderful groups, e- Free California and others were able to defeat that three straight times in the legislature in California. We've just defeated it in the Farm Bill but they know the danger. They say, oh my goodness, we're looking around the country. We're seeing communities on both coasts rising up and saying no to genetically engineered crops. And so they see this danger and they're doing their best to try and get some kind of preemption on us through state and federal reg- regulation. And it's our job to make sure that that doesn't happen, that they're not able to pass legislation that would, that would really rob uh, us of the democracy we have in saying we are voting, we are saying our elected representatives or we're having a referendum in the county and we're saying no to GMO crops. But again, and the, in the, in the, you're right to know, we, we, not, we not only have a, um, a supermarket guide, a detachable supermarket guide through which you will be able to avoid eating GMOs. I, I sort of out- all the GMOs in the supermarket, and it's a really easy way to avoid them. Not a list of a 1,000 products, just really good hints that will have you avoid almost all the GMOs in your supermarket. But we also have an organizing guide for those who really want to get involved in their communities and get involved in their schools and, and, and uh, really get involved in this issue. We, we have um, you know, uh, materials there that you can use, information on how to hold a meeting, uh, model letters, etc.
0: Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the book because it, it's pretty practical. It's big. It's full of pictures. It's easy to read. Could you talk about just creating this book as a document and, and the decision process that you made to create the written work that I think could actually ha- have a big, bring about a big change in the way we eat?
1: Yeah. you know, The idea with Your, you know, the your Right to Know was to try and give back to, to the public what Monsanto had taken away through its coup d'etat of the FDA, saying, you know, OK, it's not labeled and it's not tested. So you're in the dark. You're eating in the dark. You don't know where these GMOs are. You don't know what they can do to you. You don't know what they're doing out there. You don't know how, how ethically can you behave. So what we've done is say, here's the information. It's footnoted. Here's the information on the health effects. Here's the information on the environmental impacts. Here's what it's doing to farmers. And here's what it means. Here's what's going on around the world. Here's how it happened. Here's the, the, the revolving door and the corporate takeover. that, that you know, so We give you the whole story. Uh, and show the, the real dangers it represents, the fundamental dangers, not just to, to us and the environment, but also to species extinction, some of the things that we've talked about. And then we say, okay, now what can you do about it? Because it doesn't help just to get the news, bad news. Oh, my God, here, here it is. Here. What do you can do about it? And as I said, that's the great thing. There's a detachable shopper's guide that you can take right out of the book and take your supermarket. It's a small little pocket sized And if you follow the easy hints, and I designed that, you know, I don't mean I made the actual design, but I designed the, the, the what's in it, mm-hmm. the content, because I hate those shopping guides that have a zillion products. You know, Heinz this and Pillsbury this. And you just, you know, it's exhausting. So I said, I, you know, I want a shopper's guide for dummies, but still allow you to avoid GMOs. So I, there's just simple hints that if you follow, you'll avoid GMOs completely in your supermarket. And it's it's a small, very very easily accessible shopper's guide. But as I was saying, we did, we didn't want to just stop there because we knew people wanted to get involved. And right now, it is local democracy that's, that is the big movement on GMOs. It's happening in the counties. It's happening in the cities. It's even ha- happening at the state level. And so we, we have a whole organizer's guide in the book as well. So hopefully it tells you everything you need to know and some of the stuff you didn't want to know about GMOs. But it also says, here's how you can avoid it for you and your family with this easy guide. And then here's how you can organize in, 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 in your local community to, to, to really be one of those Like Santa Cruz has, and like uh, Mendocino, and so many others on the the, in Vermont and Massachusetts, saying no, we're saying no to GMOs.
0: We've been speaking with Andrew Cambrel. His new book is "Your Right to Know: Genetic Engineering and the Secret Changes in Your Food." Thank you for joining me, Andrew. Uh, Really, my pleasure.